Now, most of us are obsessed with money. We spend our lives collecting it and all our free time spending it. We order our social hierarchy with it and let it dictate our social groups. Politicians segment people by their salary while countries determine their worth based on their wealth. If an alien species landed on the planet and analysed our collective society, they would probably conclude that money, above religion, sex and even ideology, is the most important aspect of our world. But here's what I find interesting about money. See, the logic behind money, well, that makes sense. £10, that's more than £7. £2,000, that is double £1,000. The economics, it holds up. We all agree on that. But the psychology behind money isn't as logical. Losing £100 feels worse than gaining £100 feels good. And a £10 priced wine will tastes better than an identical wine that costs a few quid less. While the economics behind cash is solid, the psychology is a little less clear. And when you consider that money is arguably the most important thing on the planet, it begs the question, do we actually spend our money in a way that makes us happy? See, recently I got obsessed with lottery winners. I read this fascinating Swedish study. The researchers behind this 2020 study conducted one of the largest studies to date on the long-term effects of big lottery wins on psychological well-being. Specifically, they looked at 2,500 winners of the Swedish lottery. This was one of the largest studies on lottery winners ever conducted. The researchers surveyed the Swedish lottery players about their psychological well-being five to 22 years after winning a major lottery event. They found that the large prize winners, those winning over 500,000, well, they did experience a sustained increase in overall life satisfaction that persisted for over a decade and showed no evidence of dissipating over time. This this sounds good, right? Win the lottery and you will be more satisfied with your life. Maybe no one's surprised about that, but that's what the study said. However, here's what's interesting. The researchers also looked at how happy they were. So that before, that was how satisfied they were with their life, but they also asked, how happy are you? And you'd expect that happiness would skyrocket, but it didn't. It stayed largely the same, plus winners' mental health didn't appear to improve either. So the winners were saying they were more satisfied with their life, but they weren't any happier, which I think seems a little irrational. However, this finding holds up. A study by Nobel Prize winning economists Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton looked at the correlation between happiness and wealth. Obviously, we all assume that the more you make, the happier you are. But this isn't the case. The researchers surveyed a national sample of Americans, and in general, Americans thought that their satisfaction would double if they made $50,000 rather than $25,000. Twice the money, twice as happy. That's the logical conclusion. But the data revealed that people who earned $50,000 were only 9% more satisfied than those making $25,000. It wasn't a 2x increase, it was a tiny 9% increase. Around the world, income has surprisingly little influence on whether people smile, laugh and experience enjoyment in a typical day. And it turns out there really is a ceiling on how much happiness money can provide. In that same study by Kahneman and Deaton, they uncovered that once people are earning around $75,000 a year, making more money than that has no impact on their day-to-day feelings of happiness. 
That's right. According to the study, once people hit 75K, they stop gaining sustained happiness from any wage increase. This research was conducted a few years back, so maybe add 5K for inflation, but the point holds. There is a ceiling. After a certain amount, money doesn't seem to provide happiness. This goes against the fundamental concept behind capitalism, the idea that money brings us fulfillment, but studies on lottery winners and high earners suggest that it really doesn't. Sure, you need to earn enough to feel happy. Earn too little and it will be seriously detrimental to your happiness. But the rest of us may be left asking, what is the point in working so hard if this money doesn't bring happiness? In today's episode, we'll look at if you can pay to live a happier life. We'll look at scientifically proven ways to spend your disposable income in a way that will bring you happiness. And hopefully, we'll dispel some of the myths around consumption and whether or not we can actually buy happiness. But first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. I've spent the last few weeks reading all the studies I could find on the psychology behind money. Now, one of the topics that came up time and time again in the research was the experiences versus material goods debate. What is better, an experience or a material good? A trip to France or a diamond bracelet? A yoga class or a house plant? It's a question I've thought about a lot. I'm sure you all have thought about it a lot. In general, I've always felt like experiences bring me more happiness. And the research suggests that I'm not alone. When faced with the question, what makes you happier, an experience or a material purchase, 57% of Americans reported that the experience purchase made them happier than the material purchase, while only 34% reported the opposite. This difference was more pronounced among women, young people and those living in cities and suburbs, but all the demographics showed a noted preference towards experience. In study after study, people experienced a better mood after an experience purchase. I think one of the reasons why experience gives us more enjoyment is that these experiences create memorable moments that we're keen to share and talk about. And there's evidence that backs this up. When researchers at Cornell University asked a pair of strangers to discuss purchases they had made to increase their happiness, those who talked about experiential purchases enjoyed the conversation more. We like to talk about our holiday. We like to talk about our latest yoga class. We like to talk about the coffee class we took, much more than our bathroom refurbishment, for example. This enjoyment isn't only felt by the individuals behind the purchase. Participants who were being talked to, who were being told about the purchase, said they rated their partner more when they exchanged stories about experiences. And they reported enjoying the conversation less when the partner chatted about their material purchases. So don't go telling people about your designer shoes. Talk about the last movie you saw. Because these individuals who prioritised experience purchases, well, they were seen as more open-minded, intelligent and outgoing by the other participants in the experiment. Experiences make us happier and they make for a better conversation topic too. So 
this got me thinking, why don't we double down on experiences? Why don't we invest as much of our disposable income on experiences? Spend a month hiking in northern Spain rather than just a weekend. Why not head to the cinema every night of the week rather than just once a month? Now, this might sound like great fun, but that will not actually boost happiness because research suggests that extending the length of an experience won't make it more enjoyable in our memory. A study conducted in New Zealand asked holidaymakers to rate their happiness on each day of their vacation via a text message. Two weeks after they got back, they then reported their overall feelings of the trip to the researchers. Although these holidays, they ranged in length from four days to 14 days, the duration of the trip actually had no bearing on the overall feelings about the trip. Sure, the text message during the holiday showed that people were obviously happier when they were on holiday than when they were in their daily lives. But after the trip, both people, both on short trips and long trips, reported feeling the same level of happiness afterwards. Going on a longer trip didn't actually make people happier once they had returned. This suggests that short but regular experience purchases might be the best way to boost our happiness, especially if each experience is something new. See, partaking in a new and novel experience does bring about more happiness. We enjoy things most the first time we experience them. Here's a bit of evidence to back it up. This study, which is cited in Elizabeth Dunn's and Michael Norton's brilliant book, Happy Money, well, this study invited students to complete a simple task. Eat a piece of chocolate. So students are invited in, they're asked to eat some chocolate and asked to rate how much they enjoy it. Pretty fun study, right? Well, a week later... The same students are invited back and got to eat the second piece of chocolate. Here's what's interesting though. Overall, the students enjoyed the chocolate less the second time around. According to Dunn and Norton, this is the sad reality of human experience. In general, the more we're exposed to something, the more its impact diminishes. So when it comes to experiences, shorter novel experiences will beat longer experiences that we've done before. In general, you should feel happier breaking up your holiday into shorter trips and novel places rather than spending a few weeks vacationing in a location you've been to before, for example. At this stage, I want to just make a bit of a disclaimer. These studies obviously don't account for individual preferences. They are looking to understand general preferences that are shared by all of us. In general, people will prefer experiences, but there will obviously be exceptions to the rule. A coffee lover will adore a new coffee grinder and probably would prefer that over an experience. However, overall, we seem to prefer unique short experiences. And if you're debating how to spend your money, that might be handy advice to follow. When looking through papers on happiness, there's another clear trend that stands out. When it comes to life satisfaction, abundance kills happiness, but scarcity boosts it. So let me explain what I mean. If you're given a kilo of Swiss chocolate, you will enjoy it far, far less than if you're just given one piece. You'll cherish your honeymoon meal out in Naples, but you wouldn't enjoy it as much if you went once a week. And you'll feel fantastic after your first pint, but you won't feel so great after your fifth. This is the basic principle behind scarcity. When an experience or material good is scarce, we'll enjoy it more. It's the case for individuals, but also for couples as well. In fact, when couples do novel, exciting things together, the relationship itself feels novel and exciting. 
in probably my favourite study of the day, couples were bound together with Velcro by their wrists and ankles and asked to perform a series of novel physical challenges. In the experiment, other couples, so this was a different group, they were told to perform a much duller task, slowly rolling a ball back and forth while stationed on opposite sides of a large room. Afterwards, the Velcroed couple reported feeling greater relationship satisfaction and scored higher on the romantic love symptom checklist, which includes symptoms of love such as experiencing tingling when thinking of the person you love. Novelty brings enjoyment, and this holds true for us humans, but also across the animal kingdom. Another study cited in Happy Money found that bulls, well, they get bored with the artificial mating devices that farmers use to extract their semen. That's right, bulls need a bit of novelty to get them going. Research has found that by introducing some novelty, for example changing the location of the device, that reduced the time it took for bulls to ejaculate. Novelty is important, both for bulls and humans alike. Now, I don't expect many of you to be concerned with artificial mating devices, but you probably want a happy relationship. And boredom, well, that turns out to be a surprisingly potent force that can chip away at even the strongest relationships. Research reveals that the current levels of boredom a couple might be experiencing will predict the couple's overall satisfaction with the relationship almost a decade later. Boredom kills relationships, and novel experiences help quell that boredom. Now, I don't think much of this should surprise you. Many of you who work in marketing and business will have seen businesses building entire campaigns around novelty and scarcity. Take KFC's Double Down Burger, coming with two slices of bacon, two slices of cheese, and a secret sauce sandwiched between two slabs of fried chicken with no bun. This sandwich was a success across Asia, North America, and Europe. In fact, it made KFC history by becoming the chain's best-selling new item in Canada ever. Why is the burger so popular? Is it because it contains nearly a full day's worth of sodium? Nope. It is because it is not available all the time. KFC only make the burger available for just five-week periods. Usually, over that period, the burger alone will generate around 5% of KFC's total revenue, a huge proportion of sales. By limiting its availability, KFC boosted its popularity. Bringing this back to how we spend, it suggests that we should limit the amount of repeat items we buy and instead opt for unique purchases to increase our happiness. And perhaps we should actually abstain from making purchases every once in a while to just enjoy them more. This links back to one of the most interesting studies I read in preparation for this episode. This study is conducted by Leif Nelson and Tom Mavis and it looked at the enjoyment that massage customers experienced. This study, it analysed how much massage goers enjoyed their massages. Before the experiment started, they asked the massage goers an interesting question. Would you like your massage uninterrupted? So just enjoy the massage in one go. Or would you prefer a break every 15 minutes? 75% of people, the majority said, no, 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 I want it interrupted. I don't want any breaks. And that's no surprise, right? Why would we disrupt the experience? But those who were forced to take a break, so even if they'd said they wouldn't want a break but were forced to, they actually reported enjoying the massage more than those who had to experience the whole thing without a break. And they were also willing to pay more for their next massage than those who didn't have a break. The research argued that masseuses could capitalise that masseuses could maximise their customer enjoyment by inserting breaks into the massage. 
adding breaks in the service makes us enjoy it more. It also explains why no one likes receiving their starters with their mains, and probably why most theatre productions contain an interval. Breaking up your service adds a bit of scarcity and makes us enjoy it. And we can learn a lot from this research. Enjoyment in general doesn't come from abundance, despite what many advertisers might want us to believe. Limiting access to the things you will like will actually make you happier. If you like an afternoon flat white, don't buy a subscription to get unlimited flat whites. Instead, limit the amount you buy and maybe try and only have a flat white once or twice a week. This should save you money and also make you genuinely happier. So far we've seen how experiences can bring more enjoyment, how novelty boosts happiness and how scarcity can keep us satisfied. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. Next up, I'll share why waiting for a purchase is better than receiving it straight away and why giving your cash away might be better than spending it on yourself. All of that after this quick 60 second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. As I mentioned earlier, lottery winners don't see a notable improvement in their happiness or mental health. Now, I'm sure there are lots of reasons why this is the case, but perhaps one of the reasons is that lottery winners typically receive all their money at once. In the UK, it takes just four working days from the moment you've won until all of the money appears in your bank account. But maybe that's part of the problem, because some research suggests that receiving all of your reward in one go immediately, well, that will lessen the enjoyment. In one experiment, university students had to choose whether they wanted a Hershey's kiss or a Hershey's hug. For those of you that don't know these chocolates, like me, they're they're basically two very similar chocolates. The main difference is that the hug, I think, contains both milk and white chocolate. Some participants were told to eat their chosen chocolate immediately. However, others were told to wait 30 minutes and then eat. The researchers found that when students had to wait for their chocolate, they enjoyed it more. And they expressed more interest in buying additional Hershey's chocolates as well, even though they didn't learn anything new about the chocolates, they just had to wait. The delay made them enjoy it more, and similar effects have emerged for soda. In studies, after picking out their favourite brand, consumers enjoyed drinking their soda more if they had to wait 24 hours to drink it instead of drinking it immediately. This sounds irrational, of course, but it holds up. Waiting boosts enjoyment. So perhaps this is the problem with lottery winners, right? You win, and in just four days, you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds in your bank account immediately. In less than a week, your life has been transformed. 
but the science says you'll probably enjoy it more if you had to wait. You'll probably be happier if you had to wait three months for your first payment. Perhaps you'll be happiest if you get instalments of your winnings every year for 20 years. This sounds irrational. You know, why should we wait? The whole business of consumerism is focused on providing goods and services as fast as possible. You've got Amazon's next day delivery, Netflix's on-demand entertainment, Google's instant search. Today's largest companies are built on this idea of providing value immediately. But we clearly enjoy things more if we wait. In another study, students at the University of Virginia viewed an array of small gifts from chocolates to university-branded mugs. They were asked to choose the two gifts they liked the most. One group of students were given both of the gifts immediately. The other group were only given one gift and were told to wait a few minutes before they would learn which one. During the period where students had to wait, they would gaze at the picture of the gifts the longest, much more than the other group, and by the end of the experiment, they felt happier with their single gift than the students who have received two gifts. Again, it sounds irrational, but waiting to receive one gift gave more enjoyment and more happiness than immediately getting two. And when we know there is a reward waiting for us on the horizon, we feel happier than if we have already had that reward. I really believe that lottery winners would feel happier if they knew the money would come into their bank accounts in a few months rather than four days. There's this other study with more than 1,000 holidaymakers in the Netherlands, and in this study, the vacationers exhibited a bigger happiness boost in the weeks before their trip rather than in the weeks afterwards. We get more excited and get more enjoyment in the run-up to an event rather than after. People generate even more positive emotions about Christmas and New Year's Eve when they imagine these events in November than when they look back on them in January. And the same is true for negative emotion as well. People feel more negative emotion when thinking about helping friends to move house in the future than compared to when they remember that event in the past. Even cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy commonly experience vomiting and other side effects in the 24 hours before any treatment has started. Anticipation boosts our emotional reaction to an upcoming event, regardless of if it's positive or negative. And the takeaway is simple. For positive events, we enjoy the anticipation and the wait. But in a similar vein, if there's an event coming up which we perceive as negative, it's best to try and get it done as soon as possible, because the time spent anticipating that event will actually worsen our mood. Doing something we're worried about as soon as possible should help improve our happiness. Okay, quick summary. We've covered how experiences beat material goods, how abundance can kill happiness while scarcity boosts it, and why waiting for rewards can make us enjoy them more. So let's move on to the final suggestion, the final theme I spotted in the research. And again, this is pretty paradoxical. If you want to pay to live a happier life, you should probably spend that money on someone else. That's right, Elizabeth Dunn, in her brilliant 2019 TED Talk, shares research that shows how giving to charity makes the same difference to happiness as having twice as much income. Donating some of your money will make you as happy as you would feel if you doubled your annual wage. You might think this only holds true for the wealthiest people on the planet, the people with cash to burn. But it's not. Giving money away makes you feel happier regardless of your spending power. In one experiment, more than 800 people drawn from both Canada and Uganda reflected on a time when they spent a small sum of their own money, $20 in Canada or 10,000 shillings in Uganda, roughly equivalent amounts in buying power, 
In each country, some people were told to think about a time when they spent that sum of money on themselves, while others thought about a time when they spent that sum of money on someone else. And the results were similar across Canada and Uganda. People in both countries felt happier after thinking about a time when they spent money on someone else rather than themselves. Investing in others promotes happiness, even in countries where money is tight. Between 2006 and 2008, the Gallup World Poll surveyed more than 200,000 people in 136 countries on heaps of questions, including their life satisfaction and if they had donated to charity. And in 120 of the 136 countries, people who donated to charity in the past month reported greater satisfaction with their life. But there are some catches to this effect. To feel the full benefit of giving your money away, you need to be in control of the decision. In a study conducted at the University of Oregon, researchers gave participants $100. The participants were told to donate some of the money to a food bank, but all of this was actually done within a scanner that assessed brain activity as they donated. There was a twist, of course. Some participants could choose whether to give the money and how much they could give. But for other participants, the donations were mandatory. They had no choice. So some could pick their donations to, to the food bank, pick how much they wanted to give, a pick if they wanted to give at all, and others they had no choice. Now, even when donations were mandatory, giving to charities still provoked uh, activation in the reward areas of the brain. So giving even when it's mandatory is good. But activation in the reward areas, along with self-reported satisfaction, was considerably greater when people chose to donate. Giving feels better when it's your choice. This raises an interesting question. Would we be willing to pay more tax if we could pick where it went? Well, a study cited in Happy Money, it looked at just this. It took a national sample of more than 400 Americans and got them to complete a series of questions, asking them to rate both their satisfaction that they derived from paying their income taxes and the extent to which they felt their tax dollars paid for valuable services. However, one group first saw each of the categories where their tax dollars went. They showed them how much they were spending on defence, education, aid programmes, stuff like this. They were then asked to think about, if given the option, where they would want to allocate 10% of their income tax. So they've just seen where all their tax money goes, and then they're asked to think about, if they were given the option, where would they want to allocate 10% of their income tax? Now, I should note this is all hypothetical. They didn't actually get to allocate 10% of their, of their income tax to a category of their choice. But still, just suggesting an element of choice made people experience an increase in satisfaction with their tax spend and their belief that their tax money was going to the right courses. This is interesting, right? Previously on the show, we've talked about the paradox of choice, about how having too much choice can deter action, like when there are too many choices to pick from on Netflix. But this sort of suggests the opposite. I think the reason why choice is so important to giving is because it makes it feel worthwhile. We need to feel like an active participant in the gift. Otherwise, we just won't feel responsible. It's like when a group of your mates get together to buy a present for a friend, but someone else picks the present. That won't feel quite as good as if you bought a present for them yourself. Choice makes paying taxes more enjoyable. It boosts the benefits you'll get from giving to charity, but you still need to make the right choice. See, Liz Dunn in her TED talk that I referred to earlier shares how you experience different levels of enjoyment depending on the charity you give to. 
studies with the, the giant charity that you'll all know, UNICEF, and the much smaller campaign called Spread the Net, discovered that donating to big charities just isn't as rewarding as donating to smaller campaigns. This is partly because smaller charities help you picture how your donation will be used. With Spread the Net, a campaign that is actually run by a fairly large charity called Plan, but with their campaign, you are asked only to give $10 to buy one mosquito net. You can obviously spend $100 and get 10 mosquito nets, but you're paying for specifically for nets. And knowing exactly where your money will go, well, that triggers the feeling of control and made people in the study feel more enjoyment from giving to spread the net. So here's an interesting parallel thought to this. Say you manage payroll at work. You decide how people get paid. Should you change your benefit scheme? See, earlier we heard how giving to charity provides similar levels of happiness as two times in your wage, so should companies encourage giving? Well, probably, because it doesn't just make employees happier, it actually also makes them more successful. In one study, researchers collaborated with a bunch of recreational dodgeball teams. On some teams, players received $20 and were told to spend that money on one of their teammates, and on other teams, the players were given $20 and told to spend that bill on an expense or a gift for themselves. Teams who were given personal bonuses went from winning 50% of their games before they received the bonus to just 43% after, so a drop in win rate. But those teams who received pro-social bonuses went from winning 50% of their games to dominating the league and winning a full 80% of their games post-bonus. I'll be honest, I find this study a little bit questionable. That is a huge swing for a fairly small experiment, but there are other studies that seem to replicate the theory. So here's one of those studies. This time, researchers in Belgium handed out money to 14 pharmaceutical sales teams. Each team consisted of about eight members. And the researchers gave several members of the team uh, 15 euros, and they would measure the sales of the team before and after getting that reward. However, on half the teams, members were instructed to spend the money on themselves, while on the other half of the teams, the members were encouraged to spend the money on their teammates. What was interesting is that sales performance remained flat on the teams where members spent the money on themselves, but sales shot up on the teams that received the pro-social bonuses. So for every 15 euros given to team members to spend on themselves, the company got just four euros 50 back. So a net loss. In contrast, for every 15 euros given to a team member to spend pro-socially, the company got 78 euros back. So gifting your cash to others can make you happier, but it can also boost performance. And yet most of us, most of us don't donate much. In a representative sample of 600 Americans, the average ratio of personal spending to pro-social spending was more than 10 to 1. So for every $10 spent, only $1 went to charity. And that's Americans who give much more than us, partly because of their, their tipping culture. But there are outliers. Warren Buffett famously decided to give away 99% of his wealth. And Patagonia founder Yvonne Chouinard, he gave away his $3 billion company to charity. In the past, I've looked at some of these gestures of philanthropy as a little insincere, and I wondered if they were just PR and virtuous signalling. But now I see them in a different light. I think most billionaires don't give away so much just to improve their image, I think they do it because it's the only thing they can buy that'll actually make them happier. Can you pay to live a happier life? That is the question I set out to answer. And I think the answer is yes. 
Every dollar you earn up to 75k, that should boost your happiness. Buying experiences over material goods, that too will boost your happiness. Limiting yourself to treats rather than an abundance of goods is a good thing to do for happiness. Waiting for rewards rather than consuming them immediately will help too. And giving your money away, well that'll boost your happiness too. Put simply, all of us are fairly irrational. We don't always act in the way typical economic theory suggests. So if your mate wins the lottery and instantly decides to give all of it away, don't question their sanity because it might be the smartest thing to do. All right, folks, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Before ending, I wanted to give a big book recommendation to end the show because there was one book that was easily my main source material today and it was the book I used most when preparing this episode. The book is Happy Money by Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton. It is a cracking book that breaks down the psychology behind money and how spending it in the right way will improve your happiness. So if you liked today's show, I think you'll like that book. Just search for Happy Money wherever you get your books. I'm actually planning a future episode on a similar topic. It'll be about the worst ways to spend your money, i.e. the things that people buy that actually reduce happiness or at least don't raise it as expected. And that'll be out in a few weeks. But to make sure you don't miss that episode, please do sign up to my newsletter. On the newsletter, you'll get an email every time a new show goes live, plus a nudge tip every week. So go to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu to sign up. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm P underscore Agnew on there. That's P underscore A-G-N-E-W. And I'm on LinkedIn too. I'm Phil Agnew on there. So get in touch if you have any feedback. Thank you all so much for listening. I'll be back with another nudge next Monday. Cheers.